welcome to the podcast. We've got fresh content from some of the brightest minds in the Bitcoin, blockchain, and crypto space. With feeds on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram that make it so incredibly easy to keep to the pulse of what's happening. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and even hit the share button to send to someone you know who would love to know about this totally free podcast. Huge thanks to our main sponsor, UnoCoin, who are not only India's leading crypto assets blockchain company, but also the reason why this podcast is available to you completely free of charge. With that said, let's jump into one of the Blockchain Impact Conference talks that took place in Toronto, Canada on December 8th, 2017. Enjoy. Probably the number one bottleneck for every single project is where to find talent. There's massive demand for ideas and technology. It's kind of like building a, a house. You need architects who design it on paper. You need people to build a wall structure to write in the house and you need people who want to finish it. Guys who can build on top of the base layer with all blockchain. Do they finally able to push the middle work is that a really big challenge. They are in such high demand and there's so much money flying around. You only get only find one. There's a massive blocker of development talent. Blockchain space needs more people. We need more blockchain developers. We're kind of getting to an epidemic. We've raised a lot of money to build a lot of projects, but the people that are on hand to actually do the building are very lucky. We have this opportunity to build the next wave of the best applications we've ever seen. But who's going to build that? We are announcing the first U.S. fully accredited school for blockchain development. We have a six-week course. We take qualified software developers and we run them through six weeks of intensive hands-on blockchain training. So we go in as software developers and come out as blockchain developers. Our approach is not having a bottleneck and teach only one course out of one place in New York. Our approach is to create a federated network and a robust decentralized network of trainers. You can now spin up as many different academies all over the planet and have people have funding and economic incentives to learn how to get into the space I think is phenomenal and I think it's going to have a huge impact. Curriculums in mainstream schools are just not where we need them to be to graduate enough students to be able to facilitate good engineers and good technologists. And there's also been a lack of industry standards for education and certification. We have an accredited university where we certify blockchain developers because the stuff we're doing is made by the people that have invented new blockchain technology. On top of that, we'll be doing a very comprehensive career placement service, taking our graduates and helping them find meaningful roles within the blockchain ecosystem. Provide the type of learning that is really conducive to innovation, and I think Academy is doing that. We've seen this phenomenon of a lot of ICOs coming in to support Academy and help Academy build the talent that we need. The goal is to be the global leader in blockchain education. So, I mean, a very important topic and very timely. Um, I'll start by introducing all of my guests first. So, I'm going to start with uh, Jason King. Uh, Jason King is an early Bitcoin philanthropist. 
um, founder of Sean's Outpost and the most uh, amazing and beautiful Satoshi Forest project. Uh, he's currently... Which we paid off in full yesterday. Yes, I saw that. What? Amazing, amazing. Uh, he's currently dedicated, at least partly, to ending uh, hunger with the app uh, Unsung, uh, which helps redistribute um, uh, otherwise wasted food to the needy. And you are at Academy, maybe you can just say Yeah, I'm co-founder at uh, Academy School of Blockchain, the first US accredited school for blockchain development. Awesome, awesome. Um, next we have Rodolfo Novak. Um, he's an early uh, and prolific uh, Bitcoin entrepreneur and, and advocate. Uh, he's best known for his first, or no, not the first, but the biggest first project was CoinKite. Um, at the time was, you know, the biggest or one of the biggest Bitcoin wallets um, in the world. Uh, it was also a really extensive, extensive software suite and you had the, the nice POS devices for buying and selling Bitcoin. Um, your current project is OpenDime, an amazing uh, Bitcoin security hardware device. And just today, again, uh, Rodolfo announced a new product on the market, which is uh, called... Cold card. Cold card. Thank you, thank you. Cold card. Um, I saw the photos. I, I, I don't know exactly what it is, but it looks so cypherpunk and amazing. Um, so I'm really excited about that. Um, Bruce Fenton, uh, he's the managing director and chief investment officer of Atlantic Financial. And boy, does he look the part. Uh, he is former executive director and fellow board member at the Bitcoin Foundation. Bruce is a longtime influential Bitcoin advocate, um, having led numerous initiatives to foster Bitcoin adoption for a long time. Um, David Bailey founded David. Uh, he founded Why Bitcoin Magazine in 2013, and it was at the time the definitive source for Bitcoin knowledge at the Bitcoin Embassy, um, a community hub which I was. Uh, back in those days, uh, we distributed thousands of Why Bitcoin magazines, and I'm sorry, they're they're not. Uh, we don't receive them anymore. Uh, but I can say um, uh, he's involved in all sorts of stuff, um, amongst others, uh, of course, CEO of Bitcoin Magazine. Um, you know, my favorite news outlet in the space, uh, BTC Media, CEO of Distributed Ledger. Um, we have Mike in Space, a self-described Bitcoin internet gangster. Self-described gangster. Gangster. Part-time, part-time troll, uh, and a part-time gangster, and also part-time host of the Bitcoin talk show, Bitcoin car talk show, or Bitcoin car show? Bitcoin car talk. Bitcoin car talk show. Um, <laughs> a known Bitcoin content creator and social critic. Um, and we have, sorry, let me just grab Jim's And we have Jenna Pilgrim, is director of business development at the multi-million dollar Blockchain Research Institute, which was founded in March 2017 by Don Tapscott and Alex Tapscott, co-authors of Blockchain Revolution, how the technology behind Bitcoin is changing money, business, and the world. Jenna was originally brought on by the Tapscott Group to be the hype master for Blockchain Revolution, which has become a bestseller in Canada and has been translated into 14 languages. And I'm your host, Francis Pouliot. I've been in the Bitcoin space for the last four years. I started out as the, one of the directors of the Bitcoin Embassy, whose mission was specifically to promote, no, sorry, accelerate, facilitate, and uh, something, the adoption of Bitcoin. Um, and since then, I've also, uh, I, I also operate a bill payment service, which allows Canadians to pay in Bitcoin, making Bitcoin uh, any bill under any credit card in Bitcoin, which makes Bitcoin pretty useful. And I co-founded with uh, Grant Thornton a subsidiary called Cadillacy, um, whose goal is to help uh, individuals and companies adopt uh, Bitcoin and other blockchain, so-called blockchain technologies. Um, all right, so uh, let's, uh, so the panel is going to be, I'm going to be directing specific questions at specific panelists, and we have about um, 
you know, not a lot of time left, so let's get right into it. Okay, so um, Bitcoin adoption, I'm gonna start with you, Bruce. I'd like you to kind of tell us, how do you define Bitcoin adoption? What are the metrics, you know, you're looking at? You know, can you give us specific examples of things that you see, you have witnessed, or things that you would like to see? Sure, so um, some things that I've witnessed is uh, people who bought coffee with Bitcoin. Some things I'd like to see happen is the complete and total destruction of all central banks. <laughs> if you could tell us exactly how you feel, Bruce. Not, <laughs> that's that's good enough for me. If you want to add some more, that's fine. They have, they, so uh, yeah, I think it'll, we're gonna see, it's either gonna work or not. And a lot of everybody on this panel who got into it early, we believed that this would work. We believed it was better money. Now we might've been wrong actually. It might not be better money. I haven't heard any good debate or reason why uh, they, anybody would think fiat is money. Most of the people who like fiat don't even know how to define money. But the fact is there's a good group of people that believe this is better money. And it, it doesn't really matter if we're right, it just matters that there's more and more of us each day. And if that continues to happen, then it, it already is a, a global currency and I think it has a chance of becoming a global reserve currency, maybe the global reserve currency. Awesome, awesome. And, and speaking on that topic, Rodolfo, could you tell us, um, you know, keeping the, the topic of Bitcoin adoption in mind, um, what is the core value proposition or the core features of Bitcoin? It's uh, don't trust, verify. So when you have a currency that you don't have to trust anyone but yourself, it, it changes everything. Right? You don't have the same dynamic anymore where you have to go ask permission to do so. So when you have this store, you have this value, you created value by doing something. Right? You store it in your, own, uh, in your own system. And then you wanna buy something from somebody else. It doesn't matter if your country says you're not allowed to get that from that person from the other country. You can just go and do it. And when you scale that, it, it, it changes everything. And once, uh, I don't know, how many of you own Bitcoin? Holy crap. This is really changing, you know, this, this, like this discussion. Things that are completely irrelevant. Like 
pizzas and coffee and whatever that are now worth Ferraris and more. You just have to give you just have to give up that part of it. But in, in the case of like Sean's Outpost and Unsung, it's like um, Sh uh, Sean's Outpost of dates earned a little little less than one thousand bitcoins, like nine hundred and ninety seven bitcoins or something like that. Um, but in the time when we got most of that, that was like two hundred and fifty thousand, two hundred sixty thousand dollars worth of, of money. And you know we could have held on to that, but we used it. We fed uh, you know one hundred sixty seven thousand meals to the homeless. We bought a nine acre homeless sanctuary. We made a permanent residence where it's safe to be homeless in Florida with that. And um, thank you. Um, and the thing is, is that all of us that did that, all of you that did that and spent it, you have the, that seller's remorse because you sold it, thank you. Thank you for using it. Because the reason that Bitcoin's worth $18,000, whatever it is, it's been super volatile for us. But the reason it's worth so much today is because you guys actually went out and proved that the network is useful back then. And so like you guys were paying in and proving that there, this, this actually worked. And that's why that it's gone up in value so much. In 2013, when Sean's Outpost really took off, um, the predominant uh, when someone would talk about Bitcoin, the predominant narrative was, oh yeah, that's what you buy drugs with. You, you buy drugs with that. And then, I mean, everywhere, anyone that you talk to, that's what it was. And it's still there today to, to some degree, but that was the only thing people talked about. And in like an instant, you could go, well, no, there's these guys in Florida and they feed homeless people with it. And like, check it out. These are all these pictures of these people getting fed. And yo, know, there's this homeless sanctuary and they bought this thing with a Bitcoin mortgage. And like, they've been paying on this nine acre homeless sanctuary. And it was like an instantaneous way for you to say, no, actually, there's, you can do anything that you want to with this. And like, just like any other currency, like, the, the thing that's most spent on drugs in the world is the US dollar. And I'm, even the head of FinCEN says that. So it's like, you can use it for anything. And that's what you guys out there spending, and that's what, what we did at Sean's Outpost, and that's what everyone here that spent on ridiculous things in the early days did, is they proved the concept. And that's why Bitcoin's $200 billion market cap today. Yeah, I have to agree. I mean, I think it's undeniable that those Bitcoins being spent did have an enormous impact so yeah, definitely agree with that, well said. Um, so let's switch over to Dave. So, you know, we live in a really weird era where when you look at Bitcoin, you have these internet, you know, some of them anonymous, some anonymous celebrities that have arguably in some cases more influence over the way that Bitcoin evolves than like the top 50 CEOs and like the consortium of Chinese miners. We live in this area where there's fake news and propaganda and all that stuff. So, where are we supposed to get our information and what's the role of Bitcoin media in kind of mitigating all this, you know, this, this noise and, and this negativity and propaganda? Yeah, well, I think first we have to realize that no one really knows what's going on right now. Not even people within the crypto space know what's going on. And I think people can be very opinionated, but it's a huge mistake to think that anyone is the holy source of information that says what is or is not Bitcoin. I mean, you can go on to Bitcoin.org and a few years ago, you know, Bitcoin was advertised as the cheapest way to move money and to buy things in store. And, you know, that was, the community was all aligned and one. And now we've gone through a civil war where is Bitcoin digital gold or is it, is it digital cash? And this stuff is gonna play out over a really long period of time. And, and we just don't know. So nothing needs to be, uh, um, uh, you know, a holy information. Um, I think also the, you know, the free market speaks. And so on Twitter, you do have a lot of people expressing a lot of different opinions. I, I'm digging the hat over here, user-activated soft fork. And that's really what Bitcoin's all about. Um, and you know, what makes Bitcoin valuable is its anti-fragility. And we need a lot of different voices and a lot of different opinions 
battling this out in the, in the public so that people can learn and grow about what this technology is and what's happening. I think what's really important though is that we, we, don't, we don't focus so much on adoption. We focus so much on um, abstracting, uh, improving the user experience where people don't have to learn the culture or the history or the philosophy behind decentralized money. If we lose the philosophy, then we really put at risk this entire experiment. And we only have a very short period of time to onboard many, many tens of millions of users into the system if we're going to be able to protect ourselves from governments five years and 10 years down the road. So um, you know, I think the, the role of, of crypto media should be to, to make sure that we don't lose the philosophy. Um, and I think the, the role of the crypto space is to provide as many voices of many different opinions, battling it out in the free market for people to decide what's, what they believe is right or wrong. Yeah, well said, well said. Um, we're gonna keep a little bit on that topic. We're gonna, we're gonna talk to Mike in space. So, um, you know, Mike, um, a lot of people say, you know, there's no such thing as a Bitcoin community. It's just a bunch of people that are, you know, protecting their own self-interest. But I think it's kind of undeniable that there's this thing in Bitcoin, we have this unique language, this unique culture, those memes, those inside jokes that kind of make us together. So how do you think this kind of new, weird, cultural phenomenon plays into Bitcoin adoption? You know, what's the cause, what's the effect here? Well, I think you can go all the way down the rabbit hole and hodling is probably a good example of that, one of the memes that have really caught on. How many in this room have heard of hodling? Okay, so a lot. For those who haven't, it's, it's a misspelling of holding. Holding your Bitcoin, you know, not selling it, and that essentially creates a price floor. And it creates a store of value that way. And because of that, the price is where it's at and we're seeing the adoption happening. So hodling, it was just a silly Bitcoin talk forum article, but it really stuck, it, it, it kind of encapsulates what, what this is all about. Mm -hmm. And uh, lastly, I think it's gonna be the, the last question for the battle, so the, the question is for Jenna. So, you know, Jenna, um, it's talking a little bit about more the institutional adoption, adoption of Bitcoin blockchain, and you know, something that's kind of been said, I think, three or four times tonight is, you know, there's a big problem of banks, you know, shutting down Bitcoin accounts. You know, the inside joke is that we all have our, our rejection letters, you know, kind of show them off to each other. And, you know, I even have, we had Bitcoin Embassy, we would like put them on the wall and it's, it's pretty awesome. But at the same time, you have, you have the banks that are really looking into blockchain technology, uh, the financial institutions that are trying to leverage it for stuff like auditing, notarization, and that kind of stuff. So I have a two-part question. So the first one is, you know, are we, Ever going to be over, or are we ever going to be over like the, the blockchain, not Bitcoin? Do you see that in your, in your relationship with the institution as being a narrative that's shifting? Are we already past that? Or how far are we to be past that? And the other question is mostly is, you know, looking at the disruption coming ahead, should these institutions be, be scared, or is there some kind of opportunity for them? Okay, so let's take the first one. Um, are we ever going to be over blockchain, not Bitcoin? Um, I think it depends on who you ask. Uh, what we do is we try you know, to remain quote unquote like blockchain agnostic. We recognize that uh, Bitcoin is a monetary system that, uh, that exists alongside our t traditional fiat monetary system. Both are viable systems, both are viable ways to move money. One is you know, historic and, uh, and sunk in, and one is you know, one that the public is used to using, and one is a significantly more efficient way to move money privately, securely, to be able to hold your own data, and to be able to be autonomous or financially autonomous. 
But I think the Bitcoin, not blockchain uh, uh, debate, it, it doesn't address the fact that not every person in society wants to be financially autonomous. You have a whole population of people who are not financially literate. So does that mean, yes, it definitely means you should pursue trying to make them financially literate, but realistically, people want to trust governments. They want to trust um, banks. They want to trust institutions. Not everybody, definitely not everybody, but there is a large portion of the population that does want to do that. And they rely on institutions. You guys can totally disagree with me if you want. We can but, the... Pardon? <laughs> yes, please, someone jump in. See, definitely, like, you can jump in and disagree with me if you want, but there is a large population no, I, I, of the world that wants to trust governments. They want to trust banks. That's so from an institutional good. perspective, yes, banks, uh, are experimenting with this technology. You, it will be. I was at a. Uh, I was speaking at a GMP securities event yesterday, and every single person in that room was in, was interested in blockchain, interested in Bitcoin, was not ignoring Bitcoin. As I think we're moving closer to the fact that the two systems can exist. They can coexist. Fiat and Bitcoin can coexist. It's getting easier to move money between the two. So I think, will we ever come to a point where banks will use Bitcoin? I don't know. Um, Will we get to a point where uh, people will only use Bitcoin, or will you know will we move to that? I don't know. Um, I think it's it's easy to speculate, but at the same time, we really need to to think about the, the audience that we're really working with. If we're to, if we're looking at mass adoption, mass adoption means you have people from every facet of the spectrum. You have people who are at the bottom who don't want to be who aren't financially literate and don't have the capacity to be, never will be, um, and then you have people who are you know, at the top, and they want to be financially autonomous, they want to be able to take their data, they want to be able to hold their own private keys. I think it's just really reframing who the audience is that we're really looking at. Yeah, and I, I think the important part is that if they do want to free themselves from the shackles of central banking and financial institutions and government, they can, and they have the tools to do so, because you know, people like Rodolfo and, you know, and people like in this room have, have built those tools and made them available. And the other day is all UX problem. Yeah, yeah so, it, it definitely is. So if you can make the barriers even, easier, like if you can lower the barriers to people being able to choose to opt out of a normal banking system, great. But right now, there are too many barriers. Like if I can't, if like I'm not going to go tell my grandmother to buy Bitcoin, I'm going to sit with her and help her do it if that's what she wants to do. But if, like I'm not going to go tell her to go do that because it's dangerous. You know, I, I grew up in Brazil and, you know, you talk about like a large population that is on the bottom. Of, of the financial inclusion, right? And people self-bank. Most people don't pay taxes. Most people keep a pile of cash in their homes, and, and that's how life works. And if you're in Argentina, it's even more self-banking. So the, the problem with the digital currencies is just moving them to a better way of using them. If it's easy for you to be your own bank on Bitcoin, if it's as easy as using Facebook with now like with more than half of the world's population use, you know, it's it's all possible. I do agree that you know people. Not everybody wants responsibility, but if you make it easy, you can get very close to it. I, I and I'll also say that you know trust in these banking institutions is misplaced <clears throat> for the for the reason that Bitcoin and its adoption is an inevitability, and people will be driven to Bitcoin as the price of Bitcoin grows, and that will ultimately lead in in a banking and financial crisis at some point. And so I don't know what that inflection point is. Maybe it's 10 million Bitcoin users, maybe it's 100 million Bitcoin users, but like the, the internet right now has like 2 billion Bitcoin users, all right? I don't think there's any room in the, anybody in this room that doubts that 
the other six billion people on the planet will eventually adopt the internet. So cryptocurrency is the exact same way. And I, and I would really hate to uh, uh, deceive people into trusting something that um, uh, is really not a, a long-term institution where they're gonna be able to pr protect their value and their money. All right, so that's it for tonight, everybody. Thank you so much, uh, the guests of the panel. And thank you guys for joining. Don't forget to like, subscribe, and share with a friend you think would appreciate the send. Up next, more talks from past conferences. Thanks for listening.